Hi everybody and welcome back. Today I am talking to Nisha Gill from Feminine Instincts. Now Nisha has what I think is really like the missing link in all of the trauma training I ever did through my undergrad, postgrad, all that kind of stuff with trauma in psychology. And I say she's the missing link because as we'll talk about today, so much of the background and like practical stuff I can offer as it is for most psychologists is from the neck up like it's all the cognitive the memories the thoughts the emotions but then we forget about this bit that's (laughs) attached to our neck oh the rest of our body and we know that trauma stays in the body there's so many titles Um, in the trauma literature around how trauma stays in the body and how it stays in your cells and the epigenetics of it. So I'm super excited to talk to her today because she is a Melbourne-based somatic experiencing practitioner. So we'll talk a bit about what that means today, but fundamentally she's got a background in counselling and bodywork, birth education. Um, She does doula work, feminine embodiment, yoga and birth hypnosis. So an amazing array of tools for people to use just there. She specialises in birth and sexual trauma and looking at that from a resolution point of view, from a neurophysiological approach, which is right up my allergy, right up my allergy, (laughs) funny little Freudian slip there. Maybe that's referring to my allergic reaction to using any sort of touch stuff in the past because psychologists, of course, are trained not to touch people. Anyway, I digress. She is working on, I guess, that fundamental focus on safety at the capacity of the autonomic nervous system. And so this approach also lends itself to preparing for birth when it's paired with bodywork to simulate labour in a way and increase the birthing person's threshold for stress and trauma responses. So she works with individuals and groups in trauma education, um, in person and online. So I hope you're as excited as I am, like seriously, kid on Christmas morning, excited to talk to Nisha about all things trauma in the body. Enjoy. Hi, Nisha. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's my absolute pleasure, Erin. Thank you for having me. Oh, I am so, I'm super, super, super excited that you're here. I I'm thinking this is really, for me and probably for a lot of other people who are listening, this is like the missing link in, I guess, the big trauma box that at least I have been missing for such a long time. And I think it's something that this, how does trauma affect the body? How does it stay in the body? What do we do with, you know, the neck down kind of stuff is so fascinating and so important. So I'm... I'm just so delighted that you're here to talk us through a tiny, what is just a tiny little snapshot of this. Mm -hmm. Shall we start with how did you find this passion? What drew you to it? Where did the inspiration come from? Talk me through it. Mm -hmm. Well, my career started in uh, very much mainstream health years ago as a speech pathologist. Um, I worked in that field, believe it or not, for 30 years and never my passion, but was yearning for a more holistic way of being with people. And Mm. um, about 15 years ago, trained in bodywork counselling and worked in that way for quite a while Um, and then got into women's embodiment practices, specifically a kind of yoga for uh, women's bodies. And... Mm. um, That really catapulted me to the birthing world as well as to the trauma world because, well, actually birthing first because it kind of (laughs) was pretty obvious that um, trauma is, you know, a pretty big part of um, culture, unfortunately, in Mm. birth. Um, And it was a kind of um, practice where, Trauma could surface, but in a very um, safe and held way. So um, the style of um, yoga, women's embodiment, was very parallel to um, the approach to um, trauma that I then went on to study and had also been seeing women through pregnancy, massage and counselling, you know, that would have some level of um, what turned out to be trauma. And back then I didn't fully understand that that you know trauma is quite a broad um 
you could apply quite a broad definition to what's traumatic. Typically, mm. we um, tend to, you know, look at uh, postnatal depression and anxiety, but I think a lot of those symptoms overlap with trauma. So there absolutely. Was, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's kind of how. And then, I mean, I, I just love this um, um I guess I've got a love affair with with the uh, <laughs> with the um, nervous system now because it just makes so much sense on a primal level. That's yeah, kind of like the building block to everything. You know, um, when we talk about hierarchy of needs, if we don't have our safety um, ticked off, then nothing else really makes a lot of sense. Um, yes, yeah, so starting with safety um, and feelings of threat versus feelings of um, things are going well and we can just relax and, and take in life at our own pace. Yeah. Mm. So maybe if we start a little bit at the beginning with some, I guess, basic education about the neurophysiological system and how, how is trauma stored in the body? Why is talking about the body and working about the body relevant to trauma? Mm-mm. So as I alluded, um, everything does come off the nervous system you know the brain and all our nerves that mediate um, quite basic survival responses like our heart rate and our breathing um, digestive function which is put on hold when we're in a heightened state Um, these are all mediated by the autonomic nervous system the parasympathetic and um, sympathetic um, aspects of the nervous system and parasympathetic According to this um, polyvagal theory, you may have heard of it yourself, but mm. some of the listeners may not have it, um, is something that a guy called Stephen Porges studied, having looked at other mammals and how we respond to threat. And there is a kind of a sequence. And when that doesn't get completed, then um, there's kind of like a charge remaining in the nervous system as if. Um, something needed to happen that didn't happen at the time in that um, um, threat cycle, if you like. Mm. And essentially, so when we get um, ready for fight, flight, um, you know, we mobilise a lot of adrenaline and energy from that. And um, if neither of those are options, so we become captive, which is actually the case in birth a lot of the time. We're yes. captive, we can't flee, we can't fight the situation. And we go into the freeze or numbed out response in the animal world. This means that, you know, they are caught and they are um, attacked by the predator. There's, it, it, it is an endorphinized state, so there's less pain involved when the fangs go in, if you like. Mm. And that's where the numbing out and the kind of leaving one's body happens. So essentially um, trauma is is seen um, along the lines of something that's happened too too fast and it's too much to take in to process and integrate. Um, And also there's that element of incompleteness, you know, where um, um, the adrenaline spike hasn't been discharged in a way that it needed to or some kind of action didn't complete itself it was it was cut short if you like thwarted along the way Mm. and uh, there can be you know trauma by a thousand cuts this idea that it's not one big tsunami but lots of cumulative events in our lives Um, and working with clients I found that complex trauma rears its head a lot you know we Mm. talk about developmental and pre and perinatal um, trauma related to our own birth or in utero experience that's Mm. often something that also complicates the whole situation because when there's developmental trauma as you know that our wiring then isn't even um, in place like it is for somebody who has a calm environment a baby who's brought up in a calmer environment um, would have quite different um, neural wiring because they're not looking out for threat continuously, whereas the baby who's um, not had all those needs met will view the world um, as if it were a dangerous place so the hard wiring becomes um, that for threat in there. Mm. Um, you know, parts of the brain like the amygdala, the threat detector, just kind of on alert all the time. And when we are in that state, we're really um, not 
um, in full um, capacity. So we don't have access to some of our um, and brain functions such as, you know, memory or uh, problem solving or um, multitasking. Some, some of our abilities are then not online when we're in that heightened state. And so we're, with trauma, um, we continue as if that threat was still pr- uh, present and we don't come off that heightened state, which means that we're also not uh, operating at full capacity on all levels. I mean, it affects, um, you know, immune system, digestion, um, lots of other functions and certainly brain function as well. So um whether we're adult or a baby learning about the world, it, it really does um, impair our cognitive function at some level. Um, yeah. yeah. And so this is like, I mean, really, even just hearing you say that snapshot, I come mm. back to this idea again of it seems to me now non-negotiable to include part of this in our understanding and our wider, I suppose, view of how trauma is actually affecting us yeah 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 and I guess working with real life clients is a whole different thing to the textbook um, descriptions (laughs) you kind of see the complexities and the layers and um and also um quite interestingly all the things that we all do um to keep a lid on our overwhelming feelings and these typically become our addictions and our chronic um, diseases over time but certainly just about every addiction I think is about not wanting to deal with overwhelming feelings and often they relate back to um, moments in our lives which are kind of continuing on in our (laughs) nervous system at Mm. some level yeah yeah so these body memories can be um, really very potent and sometimes I find far more accurate than the cognitive memories of an event Mm. and the triggers are usually very sensate so they're um, you know to do with our five senses and the associations of course go back to the original um, event but when we when I personally do any kind of trauma resolution work it's not so much about the event Um, the context is useful to understand you know it was birth and this is what happened but it's more about how their nervous system responded to it or didn't. Mm. And um, it's also how um, the birthing person goes into birth. So if their capacity or level of resilience at the nervous system level, not so much just what they think they can cope with, but what, how their, um, what I call window of tolerance. So, the, without trying to use too much jargon yet. I was just yeah. about to ask you that. It's really interesting because I was just yeah. thinking my next thought was I'm going to ask about the window of tolerance. So let's yeah. go there. Yes, yeah, so window of tolerance, it's quite a descriptive word really. It's like how much um, how much can we manage before we get tipped out of our ability to cope um, at a nervous system level. So um, you know, the, the more shrunk your window of tolerance, the more easily you get tipped over the edge. And it relates to the cumulative stress that we bring in and any kind of unresolved prior trauma as well. So the more of that we have, the narrower our window of tolerance or a level of resilience or our nervous system capacity. To me, they're all interchangeable, interchangeable mm. ways of describing it. But um it's, um, you know, what we kind of forget about uh, because I think once somebody's had such an overwhelming um, what the fuck happened there kind of birth yeah. experience, um, it's also often easy to um, or maybe just very human to look for something outside of themselves that may be the cause such as a system, such as, mm. you know, what went wrong and what, um, uh, of my needs weren't met by the people around me but often it's really the three car accidents plus the developmental trauma that kind of led to this point in that person's life and then birth itself is just so overwhelming no matter how blissful it ends up being mm. that they get tipped over the edge you know and and becomes uh, a traumatic birth even though from the outside it may have looked really peaceful and um, 
that everything seemed fine, but it really is that inside-out experience that we're kind of wanting to capture and tap into and give people permission to own rather than the stiff upper lip of the old days and, you know, Mm. just get on with your life with your new baby now. Mm. That's kind of what happens, yeah. So then if we translate that across to the birth worker who say, maybe they're sitting in here saying, well, I've got a huge window of tolerance. I've (laughs) watched countless traumatic births, you know, you know, it could be like every single shift, every single week. Mm. And this is a, like a continuous process that happens over and over and over and say there isn't that cognitive, bodily or otherwise, there isn't that completion of the regulation process. Mm. What does that look like potentially? <laughs> um, it looks like somebody who's um, probably not very in their bodies, <laughs> not very aware of the subtleties of what's going on um, with their nervous system, um, how easily they're triggered because they may be just completely always on high alert, not able mm. to come down off that sympathetic charge in their nervous system. Um, they may keep busy so that if when they do stop, it's too much to feel and think and, and when they do stop, they can't rest easily anyway then they have difficulty sleeping if they're in a high sympathetic charge Um, and they may have you know other sort of body symptoms aches and pains if they actually slow down to feel them Mm. but um, it's this kind of let's just keep putting one foot in front of the other and soldiering on because there's this big culture of um, stiff upper lip you know especially in the medical nursing professions midwifery you just can't feel your feelings. You can't afford to, otherwise you're out of a job pretty much, you know. Mm. Um, and uh, conversely, a lot of people have the freeze response so they leave their bodies, they dissociate, they numb out, they don't feel because they, you know, their biochemistry is putting them in that place where they actually don't have to feel their feelings. And, again, they just keep um going because they feel they have to they haven't got a choice they need to pay the rent and and the bills and um, then we have you know real burnout adrenal fatigue and kidneys all implicated and compassion fatigue as well so Mm. do your job but how how much is it just robotic and how um, it's a big word to use but um you know, when, when we are dissociated, it is very easy to just go through the motions and do what we have to do. But how how are their relationships? How is their ability to just slow down and and um, take in life around them and, um, you know, smell the roses? Can they actually sit still and um, not have all these overwhelming feelings come up in their day-to-day lives after work? Um, Do they have trouble switching off and what what are their addictions and what are their patterns of um, holding it all together that are actually causing some health issues or starting to? Um, Mm. Because we we are herd mammals and we impact on one another, right? Like just by being in the same space, um, we're hardwired for connection. And um, so that whole thing of reading one another's nervous systems below that level of conscious awareness, I think, when birth workers see um, birthing people in positions or situations that they wouldn't wish upon themselves and um, it's very easy to identify and then um, pretty much uh, feel their feelings or take on their feelings and that that is a whole other topic because there's a um, you know way to be a bit more differentiated and be clear Mm. that you're not um, merging but just kind of joining that person in that situation Um, and um, I talk at length about this with um, um, the birth workers I work with just because it's not necessarily something they may have learned at midwifery school Um, Mm. yeah um, just about self-care and and, um, you know, 
also just professional and interpersonal boundaries not if you're an empath not taking on everyone's stuff because sometimes I I find there's a badge of honor about being an empath but actually Mm. it can be really disempowering to the people you work with if you're (laughs) kind of taking on their stuff and risk in a rescuing sort of way it can happen quite easily um Mm. I guess because we're, it, it may trigger our own material as well, and that um, yeah. And there is so much in that as well. This, I suppose, reward pathway that I think sometimes happens for well for birth workers who, let's say, are already on high alert because so many of them are shift workers mm. and they're on call, so they're constantly looking at their phone. They're constantly looking like, oh, has my client, you know. <laughs> labor so they're already on that high alert and then you add in just as you were talking about the mix of that and maybe over identifying again on that emotional bodily level Mm. because nobody has taught them and I guess I see this as a it's skills training really the way I look at it like from a really practical point of view is simply nobody has taught them how to be yourself how to be that beautiful intuitive emotional creature that you are but not give everything away to actually stay present in your own body in your own soul and I suppose keep those roots really firmly planted yeah so maybe can we talk about some of that can we talk about like from a practical point of view for let's say the birth worker who is there yet again or maybe even for the first time or maybe we've got some new midwives and doulas who haven't had this experience yet this is our perfect opportunity to catch them Nisha Mm, to say mm. if you are preparing for a a traumatic birth is unfolding before you what are some bodily things that people can do to ground themselves to center themselves to come back to the present yeah yeah great question thanks Erin yeah so one of the basic go-tos is to really find their feet and literally grounding and feeling the support of gravity. So tuning into their body um, and tuning into any sort of heightened feelings, pardon me, <clears throat> as sensations in their bodies um, so that they're not kind of swallowed up, you know, when you have racing heartbeat to just see the wave of it coming and going rather than getting attached to, oh, this is getting out of control kind of conversation in your head back to um just those bodily um tips that they uh, somatic tips that they could use um certainly tension in the jaw um, equates to the fight response so um trying to relax that and just being more aware of where the tension is because that may give a signal to the nervous system that actually it's not uh, a situation where this person needs to actually fight, even though they, f- by um, association, they might want to because you know um, the birthing person may be in that situation where they're um, needing to fight, mm. as it were. Um, and then using our social engagement system, which is a part of our nervous system which helps us to um, come down from uh, fight-flight responses. So using our voice, using eye contact, um, turning our head, facial expression has a role in actually relaxing the nervous system. Mm. And for anyone who's um, done any kind of hypnosis or yoga, you know, the extended exhale so just um, focusing on extending exhale because that's where parasympathetic kicks in Um, that is another way to just quietly try to calm your nervous system also broadening your um, visual field by scanning the space with again um, neck and eye movements Mm. will also bring um, parasympathetic online perhaps even identifying three blue objects because once again you're using a different part of your brain different part of the nervous system to take the focus away from um, the sympathetic which is you know the high charge 
Um, also, as I alluded to a bit earlier, labeling your feelings, your emotions as sensations in the body. So if there's a tightness or constriction in the solar plexus or, um, uh, um, you know, breath not flowing as freely or racing um, heart, just naming those things gives a little bit of distance from them as well, just having your witness online rather than being um, swallowed up by that experience because it's pretty unpleasant to feel your heart racing and mm. um, your, you know, your um, throat tighten and all those things. Sip of water if you, your mouth um, may be dry. Um, I'm not sure for a midwife how easily this could happen, but certainly for a doula, some of these things could happen quite fluidly. Um, I think even just having something though, so not being stuck in that sense of I actually can't leave. I have to be here supporting this person even though I'm not at all present at all. That could potentially be so helpful even just with the what you're talking about before. So it's kind of like you're initiating motor activity for people who want to be really, really scientific about it, I guess, of, yeah, as you said, giving the brain something else to do. So even though your natural instinct might be to run away or freeze, is that mm. you've actually got options without having to physically leave the room if that's not Absolutely. An yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm. with freeze, um, it's usually time limited, but that feeling of leaving your body and not feeling anything um, one way is again to ground through the feet and gravity but also to um, somehow be aware of um, <clears throat> pardon me your physicality through touch through um, uh, just feeling the edges of your body like your skin um, and um, say it was a midwife she could wash her hands slowly and bring full awareness to the fact that these are her hands and she's actually in this physical body because the people who really do dissociate, it's, it's really quite a bizarre feeling of really mm. just not being there, having hollow bones, hollow bodies, kind of the descriptions I often hear from clients when they are regular <laughs> dissociators and freezers. Um, yes, and certainly if it's possible to leave the room somehow to even vocalising like some kind of sound and directing it to your belly can bring whole body online rather than, you know, having the sense of not being there. And really if, if there's a panicky feeling, one of the things I do with um, the birthing people um, is to use a, an icy cold flannel on the forehead. It um, brings on the parasympathetic break or the dolphin of it's also known as the dive reflex and that's got has quite an instant impact on our nervous system as well and I think after um, you know um, after work for instance to really um, um, make sure that there's time to debrief um, with someone perhaps holding space uh, um, who can um, listen without collapsing with you because it's not much good if you're doing it with um, a co-worker who's in the same situation. You pretty much um, trigger each other and mm. the situation becomes spiralling. But also high priority to let the system, nervous system come down and process within a few hours. So one of the ways that um, um, animals in the wild avoid trauma is by trembling, shaking, growling, doing all these bodily, spontaneous bodily things that we um, as human mammals tend to suppress in some way. Mm. So um, when that can happen, there's less likely for the charge to remain and that sense that um, trauma is continuing on to be present. Mm. Um, and there's a whole, um, you know, way to be clear about whether you're um, uh, separate from your client or patient or whether you're kind of really very closely identified um, with them and keeping those boundaries, um, yeah, physical, psychological boundaries between yourself and your client. Hard to do when there's um, been a similar, you know, life experience like your own birth trauma. So number one step, of course, uh, from my perspective is for, birth workers to be aware of their own cumulative stress but certainly 
um, cumulative traumas across their lifespan because, as I said, it doesn't have to be associated with birth. It can be just any other trauma that they've carried because the nervous system doesn't distinguish between the stories and narrative. It's really Mm. just the charge that's remaining there, which is something it uh, it took me a while to get my head around or or my nervous system around (laughs) that, that it's actually not the story. It's it's what remains in our animal bodies on a very primal level. Which makes so much sense when you think about, for some people, their traumas, as you were alluding to before, they're pre-verbal. So we're talking Mm. about, um, you know, people who can't necessarily explain to you fully what has happened to them, but they know that they don't feel good when they see a certain thing or smell a certain thing or, you know, something something has triggered something and they can't verbalise it. And, you know, for some people I think it's this, I don't know, false idea that you have to remember everything in a great deal of detail in order to move on, which is a phrase I don't like, but, um, you know, to sort of process it, Mm. which can't be true because there are plenty of cases where people have very little to no insight as to what the content of their trauma might yeah. be so we could yes. sit there for five or six sessions going are you sure you don't remember are you sure you don't remember and of course the risk with that is that we start getting into territory about you know repressed and recovered memories and what is memory and what's real and what's imagined and all that kind of thing so I think that's a a really nice way of bringing things back to the okay let's just focus on what's happening in the moment mm. what can we do in the moment we don't have to go back into the past we can just stay in the moment yeah yeah absolutely and um it's interesting you mentioned somatic memories or um alluded to that and sometimes when i'm working with someone and um uh, surgery or anesthesia comes up they can actually taste the anesthetic and mm. and smell it you know just through doing the work at the nervous system level rather than um, using um, any cognitive or conscious um, memories of that time because often they they don't remember when they're in surgery under general anesthetic what actually happened but their body does which is mm. very very peculiar but um, there's the power of <laughs> amazing primal bodies um yes and we're not that far away from you know the era of the twilight but Mm. we're talking people's mothers aunts grandmothers you know who were in an altered state of consciousness for days potentially with all sorts of bizarre bodily hypnotic really downright terrifying type experiences that they're not able to articulate which then informs our culture about you know birth is terrible and it's awful and Mm. helpless and all that kind of thing that plays into it that's not that long ago no no it's actually not or even just the unconscious element in surgery so even having an epidural is is like a forced state of immobility um, a freeze response a forced state um, freeze response for the body so the body doesn't necessarily distinguish it um, um, signals to it that there is some kind of imminent threat and danger and perhaps even um, you know life threat (laughs) so Mm. um, yeah working with people who've had epidural is also another piece in it um, just because they haven't been unconscious it doesn't mean that their body hasn't processed it in a particular way that's been threatening really Mm. Um, yeah and in some ways any kind of cut so threats can be registered from the outside um, you know from the external environment but also Uh, internal body environment so a cut to the body is a potential a life threat you know like um, cutting someone open in Mm. surgery yeah so there's many levels to it and um, and it all shows up differently and um, it is very much in the moment what's going on not what we predict (laughs) a person three months post uh, birth trauma should look like there's no no Mm. such person really yeah Mm. And so let's say the trauma still hasn't shifted for someone who might be a birth worker or someone who's got a client and they think, oh, I'd like to recommend something, where can I, where can I send them? 
what does I suppose maybe if we just go to that question, what does somatic experiencing look like mm. when it's it's in the room, it's happening, this is you doing your thing, finding your flow. What does it look like? Um, so it um, it's a very gentle, nuanced approach and inherent in that is also um, this um, first step, which is building pardon me, <clears throat> safety and capacity at the level of the nervous system comes with having the connection with uh, the therapist. So mm. a lot of it is firstly building that rapport and um, the client's nervous system actually registering that um, I as a therapist am not a saber-toothed tiger, I, that, you know, it can actually start to relax. And <laughs> I can't imagine anyone perceiving <laughs> you as a saber-toothed tiger. But, but, you know, if I um, brought in the mammalian analogy, um, that nervous system doesn't know me from a bar of soap. It needs to start to relax around me before I have mm. any permission to go deeper pretty much mm. and um, and we're not talking on a personality a conscious level it's all at this very primal level of our nervous systems relating to each other and um, then there's quite a bit of um, pre-education to understand the point of difference of this approach because um, it's it's um, starting to gain momentum but not a lot of people understand how it differs from traditional psychology or mm. other sorts of counselling and why the focus on what happened is not as um, prominent as, you know, what's happening now in relation to the experience, what's happening now in your body and your nervous system. Um, so um, the person may um, learn to find places uh, that are safe in their body because as soon as we start to scan our bodies for sensation, usually the things that are not working will jump out, um, the things that are achy or constricted or painful even. And it's like a reorienting to the fact that, okay, there are some niggly bits, but actually there are also these places of expansion and ease and maybe even pleasure in your body that can hold you through all these um, places that feel stuck especially when you're in a heightened stage you just notice all the bits that are not working but mm. remember with a, with a kind of retraining you get to remember at a body somatic level that there are all these other places and then there's a kind of building capacity over lots of um, um, experiences of tracking nervous system so we don't go headlong into an old um, uh, a traumatic event that we want to create some repair around but build up to it so that the system has that platform, that uh, baseline capacity from which to then move towards that uh, old trauma piece. And um, uh, there's also uh, times when uh, just direct touch into the nervous system through supporting the kid kidney adrenal system, for instance, which is a, another piece of um, training that I've done specifically for trauma. But it, it's very much in line with somatic experiencing where you're kind of just giving uh, the nervous system the message that, you know, there are places of safety here. It's okay to let go, but mm. to do it at your own pace and very slowly and gently only to your window of tolerance, to your level mm. of capacity. Um, so a lot of it is um, holding that container of, of safety but knowing when to um, guide people to their edges just enough so that they make a shift but not so much that they tip over the edge. And that's the art form and the intuitive part of the whole process, I guess, is um, it's a little bit conceptual and hard to explain <laughs> without the experience, but mm. um, it's um, yeah. And in that space, you know, when we're actually working <clears throat> on specific trauma or tuning into parts of a body, um, when we have triggers or somatic memories of um, you know wh whatever was traumatizing and from the past, then we 
no tuning or sensations are particularly prominent, usually for most people, but some people are not that kinesthetic or they don't even want to be in their bodies. So there's a lot of ways to ease into all that. But as well as sensations, there may be images or textures or smells, tastes, memories of various kinds and um, feelings or emotions, um, a desire to move or vocalize in a certain way may come up in that space. And that is seen, seen as a kind of um, the incomplete response sometimes, particularly with the movement that we then initiate um, in a very mindful way, not in a cathartic, in like a pushing through or cathartic way, so that once again, the witness is online to actually uh, register those shifts and have the context of what didn't get to happen and what is now feeling to the nervous system that it's getting to complete. So that is like um, pure repair work of um, a specific traumatic incident. But when we're talking about just general nervous system regulation, um, such as through the direct touch work, it's just to build that platform. When I say just, it's a pretty important piece. I know. I know. <laughs> um, particularly, you know, when we've had long-term cumulative stress trauma and particularly developmental trauma, the wiring has never had that opportunity to feel what it is like to have this bigger space from which to springboard into life and so that uh, there needs to be quite a bit of rewiring if you like before um, uh, someone can get to that point mm. yeah and so in some ways it's a bottom-up but also top-down approach so that um, you know it's all parts of the brain talking to each other to register the shifts and then to give it context um, you know through our words and the meanings that come up through it um, and, yeah, and um, it, it can be adapted to anything. So, for instance, I do internal body work um, as a birth simulation journey preparing. Tell me what that means. The <laughs> image has flashed up in my mind just you saying that. And I thought, well, if I've thought that, and I know that that's not probably an accurate image, it must have flashed up for other people. What do you mean by that? So I've trained in internal body work for birth as a way to help reduce tension in the pelvic tissues. And um, if someone is at the point where they're ready to go there um, to, to see what may be still lurking in, in a sense um, of body memories, somatic memories of their previous perhaps distressing birth, um, and, you know, not even distressing births or sexual experiences. We as women carry a lot of tension in our pelvises, mm, no matter do. what the source is. So to do that work and then pair it with um, yourself to be in birth and then seeing what comes up. So if there is trauma, um, you know, there will be shifts in their nervous system. They'll start to get a racy heart or constriction or whatever it might be then we talk through that we slow everything down and feel into what wants to surface to be dealt with if it's ready to be or just as more of a prospective way to imagine how you'd like to feel in birth and now you're feeling perhaps a little tension but can you just relax that part of your body. So if it's, we're talking about intravaginal work, you know, relaxing this very point in your vagina to, um, to be able to surrender and relax um, to open the space for baby to descend, that's sort of like a practice, you know, a rewiring again of the whole body-mind um, complex to be able to um, go there without then having that, hopefully without having that um, sympathetic charge in the nervous system as they're in birth. Mm. Yeah, so that's the prospect of work, but it can be specific repair around previous experiences as well. Um, so, so it's the, yeah. yeah, I'm imagining there's a lot of, I mean, I'm guessing, you can correct me if I'm not correct, but I'm imagining there's a lot of work on the breath going into this breath can um well you know that it's interesting you mentioned that so the thing with the work I do it's not about suppressing um 
what wants to surface because breath can be used to uh, as a tool right to to mm. create a relaxation response so if we're wanting to work with material we actually don't want to suppress what's coming up um, too soon so mm. it may be a tool in birth but perhaps not when you're trying to work through trauma so immediately you know like mm. actually just not letting anything bubble up because then there's nothing to work with if you're just using your <laughs> relaxation tools right through um, you're not actually getting the material there to work with to help shift it if you like mm. um, yeah so it's an interesting one certainly you know as as um, we were speaking about earlier having um, yourself in a, a birthing room and feeling a bit out of control yes breath is probably the first go-to I would use to help relax myself but if you're actually trying to um, work through something it's probably better not to suppress it all too soon um, so that you, you kind of make some um, have some momentum in the direction you want to move to with uh, trauma resolution mm. Which makes sense. It does make sense when mm. you say it. I think it, it goes back to what we were talking about before with some of this being like, oh, but don't you do this and then you do this and that's, you know, like <laughs> long, long, long cut of my training of going, oh, but you must. And then, so then when I hear you say, that's one way to do it. This is what I, I love. I love getting out of this thing that a lot of us, um, whether we work in the wellness industry or we're just working with people in general, we can get a bit stuck in the like, oh, well, this is actually like this is the way I did it, so that's the only way to do it. Yeah. So this, yeah. this is a good conversation to have because it's just, yeah, it's opening my mind and <laughs> opening my pelvis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I do also work in uh, with sexual trauma and women and same thing applies, you know, but... Um, yeah, a whole other layer, though, with that compared to birth. And bringing, um, you know, the two together because when I'm working sometimes with women working on birth trauma, yes, a sexual trauma can come up or their own birth experience because it's a very similar part of the anatomy but also the primal energy of all of those places are very similar. So, you know, working on one can lead to the other and then whatever feels most pertinent at the moment, at the, in that moment, is what we work with. It doesn't have to be ticking one box and then moving to the other because, as I said, the nervous system doesn't distinguish. It just mm. carries the charge. So working on any of it is helping the overall impact on all of our experiences essentially. <laughs> it's hard to can you imagine doing a, 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 <laughs> some research on um something like this it would be pretty pretty difficult study to um <laughs> you know to um set up but um yeah to have a double blind control study on <laughs> a oh. birth trauma resolution <laughs> with internal body work perhaps, any research perhaps. in birth takes forever i suppose yeah. for those people who are thinking trying to imagine this visually I wonder if this is a good question to ask you maybe it's just a bit more of a sticky big question but I'll ask anyway what does your consulting space look like oh it's um well I've got a massage table but I've got a couch and armchairs and a book with a bookshelf with lots of books and a lot of um colors and textures that I love because they relax me and um, my clients say yeah they you know all those visual things um, and textual things that bring us back into our body in a pleasurable mm. way I guess I've always been like that so it's not surprising that I'm working in this field which focus so much, focuses so much on embodiment <laughs> um yeah so um it's a relaxing environment and I've got a little view to the outside um garden which is another thing you know very much looking for what our own resources are to relax mm. our bodies um as we move through life um, no matter if it's in a ward um environment in, in a hospital or um in our own homes uh I mean, I, I'm very um, 
sensitive to environment. And I think a lot of people are, but don't realize it, um, that how, how much just cha changing things around can affect your mood um, and your state of mind or state of nervous system more to the point. Mm. Yeah. I know that's very, very true for myself. And I was asking you that question because I was thinking visually, like I think a lot of people imagine oh, I'm going to go for a consult with someone, perhaps it's in like a little office-type room and there's a chair there and there's at least it has been in a lot of my practices. It's mm. just been a couple of chairs and you sort of sit and talk. So I suppose what I'm, yeah, trying to do is get people to imagine, oh, actually it doesn't have to be like that. There's movement, there's light, there's – and I know for me I'm – I am very sensitive to the environment and I was even um, thinking about this this morning because I started a little ritual about how I set up my own office space with mm. candles and flowers and all that kind of stuff, which on the surface sounds a bit superficial and maybe I'm just procrastinating and don't want to get on with my work. But I know for a fact that sometimes I have worked in environments, say, for example, um, a converted car park in, <laughs> in Melbourne Central, uh -huh. right down the back, like through a fire escape, concrete, mm -hmm. like my vitamin D levels were terrible. It's very grey. It was very depressing. And I, you kind of just go into a space sometimes and think, oh, I can make that work. And then it's not until you're out of it and go somewhere else. You're like, that really didn't work for me. Like it mm. really just brought down the mood of everything. So it's, yeah, it's interesting that you talk about that because I think it is such an important potential trigger for people yeah. when you've got, um, particularly when we're talking about our birth workers who, are, you know, a lot of them are working in hospital environments with artificial lighting and, you know, not the most wonderful smells and, stiff synthetic fabric uniforms and like mm. the levels of sensory um, input can really affect people or as you were talking about before they can completely numb to it and not even notice things like how does the shirt feel touching the skin and those sorts of things yeah and then put themselves in the shoes of their patients or clients and how you know um not necessarily having become so desensitized or that not necessarily appreciating how easily um, those birthing people could be triggered by such an environment. I think by and large, a lot of hospitals have hidden all the, you know, all the um, medical equipment and so forth behind cupboards, but I still walk into places as a doula and, and notice, oh, gosh, this is still quite clinical. You know, they've done a, mm. something quite token here, but they could have just gone that little bit further, the blue lighting and, <laughs> and the lack of awareness sometimes of just the lighting, very basic in, in um, birth, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, we kind of lose sight of that on this um, some someone reminds them or they have their own experience and then they're reminded <laughs> fully that you know this just does, doesn't work um that sort of setting is um a real trigger for some people and mm. hospital smells for a lot of people are triggers aren't they mm. and even back to what we were talking about before the, the pre-verbal if you've had ah, yes, yes you know visiting unwell grandparents or mm. you've uh, you know all sorts of reasons people go to hospital they're not typically for joyous occasions yeah <laughs> unless it is a birth um I imagine lots and lots and lots of people have experiences of like, again it's that I can't quite verbalize it but hospitals make me uncomfortable yeah yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> and then they yeah. go and work in them <laughs> anyway yeah <laughs> okay what I'd like to do next is ask you a bit, if you don't mind, what does self-care for you look like? Now, this can be anything, mind, body, spirit, whatever you want to give it. I always just kind of like to gauge what other people are doing. And it might just be something, here's a small practical thing I do, just to kind of blow out the dandelion seeds, so to speak, and give people some <laughs> ideas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, well. You know, it's changed over time, um, depending on where my my work's been and where my life has taken me. But currently, what I do is um, I have a morning practice where I'm I feel into my energy body in a more expansive way, so that I'm, you know, not um, perhaps as 
buffeted around by emotional ups and downs and realize, realize that this is a bigger picture here <laughs> in mm. in the work that I do as well. You know, it's not about me. It's um, hopefully through me, <laughs> as it were. Um, so that kind of sets my day. And I'm, I'm a bit of a night owl, but I do know that some kind of rhythm, I have an aversion to the word routine, does help, you know, um, with just feeling a bit more uh, grounded and centred and calm when I commit to some kind of rhythm and regular bedtime and getting up time does really help. And that would be difficult for people who are shift workers, I imagine, very difficult. Um, and then really quite simple pleasures for me. I've got a little patch of grass in the backyard. I really love just um, grounding through my bare feet on grass. Um, if I'm seeing a few clients in a row, really important to do that and hydrate and, you know, nutrition and not going for um, the quick fix foods, but really more nourishing foods as far as I can. <laughs> um, and other simple things like playing with my cat. It's just such a calming thing for my nervous mm. system. Just brings up that bubbly energy. Of, you know, if you kind of tease a kitten, it's always fun to <laughs> to watch and just um, shake up my own energy if I've been very focused or I've been very heady um, in any way. It just brings me back into my body in a pleasurable way. Mm. Um and then all very basic things, really, just trying to fit in a walk um, a few times a week at least and get out and out of a sort of a room um, and out into the open air. Uh, but I think a lot of people would have far more, more uh, detailed uh, self-care sort of plans that are quite exciting if they live by a river or something I can imagine it'd be very nice or in the bush to be able to just ground well the theme here is nature really I think nature mm. has such a healing sort of impact um, but that's my bias I can't imagine many people would disagree though some are more ocean people some more bush people um, yeah so whatever helps but really grounding through the feet and in direct contact with the earth somehow I feel is a really useful thing. And is that something that you have got yourself into the habit of doing, um, say, when you're leaving your doula clients after a birth, before you get in your car or before you step through the door? How does that work for you? Or how does it work in the ideal, <laughs> in the ideal world? Um, I, yes, yeah, certainly after my doula client, actually, I'm often on a high, on an oxytocin high. Mm, so I enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy that high <laughs> to its fullest. And it's hard to sleep immediately, even if you're tired after a birth. I, I really follow my, uh, what my body is telling me in the moment. Um, so there's nothing set that I do, it depends on how the birth went. Um, but Sometimes I might need to debrief and I try to do that within, you know, the first 24 hours with a, a trusted colleague because, um, again, that, you know, um, just not wanting to ruminate, just wanting to ha get clarity and then um, have some kind of way of discharging. So if it's something quite heavy that I'm dealing with around clients, I make sure that I, I really just move my body in ways that it needs to without questioning, like doing it in a very intuitive way and hope that whatever charge I'm carrying is moving through me. Um, so that's not, that's not even doing SE as such. It's really just being intuitive about my animal body. <laughs> and probably um, a lot of my learning around this came through the feminine embodiment work that I did for many years and taught. Um, it was um, very much at that primal level, tuning in to everything, you know, around um, how to feed our bodies, how to create boundaries that were real and instinctual and not um, what I had been conditioned to accept as boundaries. So really, Boundaries probably applies to every part of us to keep ourselves well and safe um, and also around self-care. So knowing when to say no just because it's um, 
you know, some something that's expected of me to attend a function, a family function. But if I've been at a birth, um, even if I'm hosting, I will want my sleep. I'm not going to compromise on that mm. because I know that my longevity, my adrenals are not going to last very well if I keep putting everyone else first because that oxygen, oxygen mask just really just needs to go on um, for me to be able to sustain the work that I do. Um, yes, yeah, so not mm. apologising for boundaries. Um, and I love that you talk about this in such a positive way instead of it being like, oh, boundaries, right, let's have a serious <laughs> conversation. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it can just be as simple as exercising your no muscle and yeah, yeah. no full stop, not no, oh, I'm sorry, and going into big, long explanation. No, that's really good. Mm. Um, tell me something that you're reading, listening to, watching. It doesn't have to necessarily be birth-related, but something that other people might find useful because I think we all like to go down a bit of a rabbit hole <laughs> or something that you're been consuming that other people might find interesting useful helpful entertaining yeah unfortunately I don't give myself time or permission to do I'm I'm so thirsty for knowledge in both the birth and trauma worlds that I have piles of unread books you're partially Mm. read and I've got (laughs) quite a few um, on the topic of trauma at the moment and there's one that's called the Tao of trauma which is all about this um touch um, regulation training that I've done. It's written by my teacher and another author. So I'm really just can't wait to really get right into it. (laughs) It's um, been sitting on my shelf for a while. So it's um, that's something I'm reading. Um, When I need some total veg out time, I've been watching this silly um, serial on Netflix called what are they called? Grace and Frankie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love them. Yeah. So that's, um, I switch that on whenever I really need to just have a break from anything to do with work. <laughs> and this is good because this is self care and like self awareness and looking after your nervous system isn't all highbrow stuff. This is something I'm always trying to communicate yeah. to people. <laughs> doesn't have to be highbrow, doesn't have to be, you know, like, um, you know, books that are, I can't remember who coined the phrase, but bits of cultural furniture that you have to, like, look nice and impress people, but actually it's, you know, serving another purpose. Yeah. Well, that is wonderful. I have learned so much, so much to take away from this. Is there something of yours that you want to plug or do you want to tell us uh, where people can find you um i do have a website but with all my (laughs) evolutions it becomes outdated quite quickly however um it's feminineinstincts.com.au i will be having a um in-person workshop in melbourne for birth um professional I, I do this periodically with um, a midwife colleague um, and that's happening in May um, in sorry in April um, 13th of April in Melbourne um, it's uh, specifically for birth workers um, and it's very much along the lines of what we've been talking about but there's an experiential component as well so that they get mm. to reflect what their go-tos are for instance you know with fight flight and freeze and their coping strategies and um yeah it it goes into um things in a bit more depth so that's happening and i've just started i think you know this um but a uh, facebook group um called birth trauma awareness um partly because there is not very much in melbourne let alone australia Mm. and um I have a few overseas colleagues from both the birth and trauma worlds who, whom I'd like to also invite to, um, to add to uh, the body of knowledge. Um, so it just um, was a you know useful place to to make a start. Um, and I love what you're doing, Erin, just with all your 
years of um, experience and wisdom. Um, Thank you. And very much, you know, as as a mum, as a sub- well suburban mum, <laughs> and not and not necessarily only with your professional hat, and which is really refreshing to see, um, because I feel that uh, lived experience and everything that you share that I've seen, you know, that comes through a lot. Um, that you're human being first, and then the professional, and I love that. I'm glad that I'm glad that's coming across. Yeah, oh, thank you very so much, much. Very much. I really enjoyed talking to you today, but I suppose we had better wrap up. So, I will say thank you once again. I'm going to put um, any sort of resources or anything that you've mentioned in the notes. But other than that, I think that's it for today. Thank you so much again for having me here. It's been a pleasure. Isn't she wonderful? Don't you just feel so good now, like having taken away some snippets of information that you didn't know before? I definitely have. And I think listening to Nisha talk about this stuff, it's just like sinking into a nice cosy armchair and really getting back into your body. And as as we were talking about, opening your mind and opening your pelvis, right? So... Um, Nisha mentioned a couple of resources. I will put them on my website and you can find any of the notes to do with podcasts, any information about me, about mentoring, the Facebook group, all of those kinds of things at drerin.com.au and Nisha's website is feminineinstincts.com.au. Have an amazing day and I will talk to you next time. Bye.